0: 46, and uh, we start with, who you might expect we'd start with, the uh, nation of Egypt. Um, So, uh, chapter uh, 46, uh, verses 1 to 6.
1: The word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the nations, against Egypt, concerning the army of of Arameka, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates, in Kerkamesh, Which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. Order the buckler and shield, and draw near to battle. Harness the horses, and mount up, you horsemen. Stand forth with your helmets. Polish the spears. Put on the armor. Why have I seen them dismayed and turned back? The mighty ones are beaten down. They have speedily fled, and did not <coughs> look back. For fear was all around, says the Lord. Do not let the swift flee away, nor let the mighty man escape. They will stumble and fall toward the north by toward the north by the river Euphrates.
2: Okay.
0: So this is in the historical context of the battles of Carchemish. Now what we need to know is that you had Assyria as the dominant empire. Babylon started rising up against Assyria. Babylon started conquering Assyria and driving them back. If I'm not mistaken, they conquered Asher in 614. They conquered Nineveh in 612. They conquered Haran in 610. And the Assyrian remnants withdrew to Carchemish. In 609, Pharaoh Necho came up to bolster the Assyrian effort at Carchemish and hold the line at Carchemish against the Babylonian advance, Egypt managed to help the Assyrians, really, pretty much Egypt, you know, managed to hold Carchemish. But in 605 or 6, Nebuchadnezzar, who at that point was a Babylonian general, soon to become emperor, he managed to drive the Egyptians out of Carchemish and, and, and basically gain control of that whole area from the river Euphrates right down to the border of Egypt that was the year then that Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah and takes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the sharp young men captive so it's in this uh, year that the word of, uh, of the Lord comes to Jeremiah to Egypt saying verse 3 and 4 do what? What's God telling Egypt to do in 3 and 4? Prepare for battle. I mean, put up your dukes and fight like a man. You know, get the shield, the buckler, the horses, the steeds, the helmets, the spears, the scale armor. Get it all together. Be well prepared. You know, you almost see a frenzy of uh, a flurry of preparation. And and make sure you're equipped and ready. And then what do you see in 5 and 6? They're terrified. They're terrified. And what are they doing? Fleeing. Fleeing. You see them breaking ranks, panic-stricken, you know, fleeing away, the army routed, uh, running for, not to battle, but running for their lives, terror on every side. Uh, it's just it's just uh, a, a picture of, of panic. Now, here's one thing that the battle of Carchemish did, that second battle. Judah had this terrible habit of always turning to Egypt and thinking Egypt would save them. Well, does it much look like Egypt can save anybody after the second battle of Carchemish? You see their soldiers just scattered, you know, fleeing, panic-stricken, It really was a good lesson to Israel when God brought Egypt down because they had had this constant habit of turning back to Egypt and Egypt proved itself unworthy of anybody turning to them. Now they still did try to turn to Egypt sometimes, but there was no reason for them to after this. Comments and questions through verse 6.
3: Cameron. I don't understand verse 5 where it starts off saying, Why have I seen it? Can you explain that?
0: Well, I mean, you wouldn't expect that, would you? After all they prepared after this flashy, powerful you know impressive Egyptian army, this is like in three and four you see, wow, this is going to be like blitzkrieg they're, they're going to destroy the Babylonian well, what's that? it's not what I thought it would be they're all fleeing so I think it's more like that kind of a, a question of kind of surprise and amazement
3: okay so it's referring to the continuing verse five I think six so and not
0: yeah. that's five. what I think okay yeah. Other comments or questions?
4: Why would Egypt ever help Israel? You have to do this.
0: They never did.
4: They never were any help, but they took their money and claimed to help them or.
0: Well, yeah, exactly. Egypt had some interest in Israel and Judah, you know, being a buffer zone between them and those powers of the Mesopotamian region. But as far as really helping, for that matter, why were any of these superpowers interested in helping Israel or Judah? You know, all they ever did was use them. They'd take their money and sign a treaty, but then they double-cross them whenever it was in their interest. So it didn't really make a lot of sense why they'd ever make a treaty with anybody. Besides that, they could turn to the Lord. That's what the Lord wanted them to do. But I don't know that they ever really had a friend in the the ancient world. I don't know that many countries do today either. I mean, you know, it's all kind of politics and double-crossing and so forth. 7 to 12.
4: Who is this, rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like uh, rivers whose uh, waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants, advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out, men of Cush and Put, who handle the shield, men of blood, skilled in handling the bow. That day is the day of the Lord, God of hosts, a day of vengeance. To avenge himself on his foes, the sword shall devour it and be saved, and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north uh, country by the U- river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take fall. O virgin uh, daughter of Egypt, in vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame. For the earth and the earth is full of uh, your cry. For warriors have stumbled against uh, a warrior they have uh,
0: fallen both together. Right. Now you remember the uh, most significant geographical feature of Egypt was the Nile River. And he's picturing Pharaoh uh, like the flooding of the Nile. Now you know how the Nile worked. I mean like in the spring you get the, the snow melt from the south on the, those high mountains in the you know, lower Egypt and below. And so and you get the rains, and so what would happen with the Nile? It would flood. And that would both irrigate and it would bring, I don't know, from why my geography classes somehow or other that to help the nutrition of the land and so forth. I don't quite know all that stuff. But anyhow, that was a big thing for Egypt and helped their crops and all that. So you'd have the over flooding Nile, which just every, every spring it would just rise up. and and flood out that uh, delta area. And so he's picturing Pharaoh like that. He's rising up like the Nile, and he's seeing himself as just destroying everybody as the dominant power. You know, Pharaoh sees that he can just flood out the world and control it. You know, he's got this ambitious plan to to conquer and to be the, the world emperor. And uh, what do you see in that attitude of Pharaoh? What's a good one-word description of Pharaoh's attitude? Yeah. yeah. I mean, any, any king who thinks, hey, I'm just going to flood out all my enemies. I'm just going to conquer the world. A little bit of pride involved in that, don't you think? How does God usually handle pride? It it
1: down.
0: Yeah. God's not usually happy about that. So the next we, this is kind of like snapshots. So we see the snapshot of Pharaoh thinking, I'm gonna be like the Nile and just flood out everybody. And then the next snapshot, what do you see happening in nine and ten? get defeated they get defeated you see the horses the chariots the mighty men the allies and verse 10 for that day belongs to the lord god of hosts a day of vengeance so as to avenge himself on his foes the sword will devour and be satiated and drink its fill of their blood and the lord there's going to be this uh, slaughter this is basically god making a great sacrifice and the sacrificial animals were the Egyptian army. You know, it's not man's boastful pride and it's not his, you know, military equipment. And it's not the number of soldiers in his army that decides the battle. God rules the world and God decides what's going to happen. And so the Nile ended up being defeated, in uh, the verse 10, by what river? The Euphrates trumped the Nile. (laughs) Because the Euphrates is the dominant river of like Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia. And so, you know, in the land of the north by the river Euphrates, the Lord slaughters the Egyptian army. And, uh, you know, Egypt's quest for world domination ended abruptly at Carchemish on the Euphrates where they were destroyed and their army was decimated and sent going back home. He says in verse 11, go up to Gilead and obtain balm. Now, um, Gilead was an area known for a healing salve, a healing balm. Um, but he says, there's not going to be heal- any healing for you. You know, this, this famed uh, healing salve that's supposed to cure all your ailments is not going to work for Egypt. Because God is determined to destroy Egypt. So there's no no balm anywhere that's going to uh, heal uh, their wounds. Um, You know, he calls them, O Virgin Daughter of Egypt. The term virgin, in many of these passages, means someone who's undefeated. A virgin has never been dominated by men. So the idea is Egypt has previously been unscathed, undefeated. Nobody's ever succeeded in conquering them. Well, that's this is where this stops. You know, the virgin daughter of Egypt will be violated. That's the idea. And you see um, in in the end of verse twelve, what are the Egyptian soldiers doing? Dumbling over each other, doing what, do you think? Fleeing. You know, it's just a rout. They are in terror, in panic, and they're running over each other trying to get out of there. I mean, it's just a way of really vividly showing, they—they are. This, this is over. You know, they can't get out of there fast enough. You know, and what do you see in that? Superpower Egypt is no match for God. God has decided to bring them down and it's going to be overwhelming destruction for Egypt. Coming to questions through 12. 13 to 19.
2: Message which the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to smite the land of Egypt, and declare in Egypt, and proclaim in Migdal, proclaim also in Memphis and in Say, Take your stand and get yourself ready, for the sword has devoured those around you. Why have your mighty ones become prostrate? They do not stand because the Lord has thrust them down. They repeatedly stumbled, indeed they have fallen one against another. Then they said, Get up and let us go back to our own people and our native land away from the sword of the oppressor. They cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a big n- noise. He has let the appointed time pass by. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely one who shall come who looms up like Tabor among the mountains, or like Carmel by the sea. Make your baggage ready for exile, a daughter dwelling in Egypt. For Memphis will, come da- will become a defolation- desolation. It will even be burned down and bereft of its inhabitants.
0: Okay, so what do you see happening here? Well, in verse 13, Babylon smites the land of Egypt. You know, Babylon invades Egypt, brings Egypt down. Um, You know, it wasn't just Carchemish. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and invade Egypt itself. Look at the place names in verse 14. These are not places out in Carchemish. These are cities of Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and invade Egypt and he's saying you better take your stand and get ready verse 14 you know in other words Egypt's going to have to defend its home territory and it's not going to be successful so so much for Pharaoh's plan to conquer the world he's not even going to be able to hold the, the, the country of Egypt you know you see these uh, mighty ones in verse 15 becoming prostrate, prostrate. Uh, they don't stand. Now who are these mighty ones? Well look at verse 16 they have repeatedly stumbled, indeed they have fallen one against another, then they said get up, let us go back to our own people and our own native land away from the sword of the oppressor. And here's what I understand by that if these mighty ones are saying we're going to hightail it back home then they're not Egyptians these are mercenaries These are soldiers that Pharaoh hired to help him defend his country. And when they see the handwriting on the wall, you know, hired soldiers, that works as long as you're winning. But hired soldiers, when they see that you're about to go up and smoke, who cares about the money? Get out of here and go back home. That's what you see. And look what they say about Pharaoh. These are the hired soldiers that have panicked in retreat. They cry there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a big noise. (laughs) He's let the appointed time pass by. He's a noisy braggart who doesn't get anything done. They see Pharaoh as a blowhard. You know, he'll talk a lot, but he's really powerless. That's the opinion even of his own hired soldiers, hired from other countries, as they flee the destruction. So as I live declares the king who's the king, verse 18 the Lord of hosts surely one shall come who looms up like Tabor among the mountains or like Carmel by the sea. Now, uh, some of these things you just need to know some things. (laughs) Uh, Anybody know anything about Mount Tabor? I have never you know?
4: Judges were Bayrak went with Deborah defeat
0: Cicero. Yes. Do you know anything about geographically and topographically Mount Tabor? I have never been to Israel. I don't think I'll ever go, but some of these things would be really interesting because I read about them, but I've never seen it. But Tabor was more or less um, it wasn't in the coastal plain but was it was closer to the coast than that, that mountainous uh, hilly spine. Of Israel, and it was kind of a dome shaped mountain it was kind of a, a rounded mountain, but it was, it was kind of on a plain or, a, or at least very you know rolling area, and so it just kind of rose up you know, like a, a single mountain, not high mountain but a single mountain in, in a low area, so it just kind of like you, you see mountains like that you know you see groups of of hills, mountains whatever doesn 't impress you as much. As all of a sudden, you're kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And suddenly there's just one hit big hill. You know, there's one mountain. So it just kind of, whoa, that's kind of weird because everything else is low. Mount Carmel. Do you know anything about topographically, uh, geographically about Mount Carmel? The sea. Yeah, it rose out of the sea. In fact, when, when, when people would be traveling the way of the sea north and south through Israel, they would have to jut to their right Maybe, I guess, depends on which direction you're going, doesn't it? Uh, if you're going north, jut to your right, jut to the east, to go east of Carmel. Because you couldn't keep going on the seashore this mountain comes out of the sea. Kind of reminds you of Rio de Janeiro in uh, Brazil, where a mountain comes out of the sea. And uh, so, here's what he's saying. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely one shall come who looms up like Tabor among the mountains, or like Carmel by the sea. Both of these are very high mountains, just kind of imposing mountains out of a a low place. I think he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is this dominating figure who's just going to rise up out of nowhere and dominate the landscape. So he says... Make your baggage ready for exile, O oh daughter, dwelling in Egypt, for Memphis will become a desolation, and so forth and so on. So, he's saying Egypt will be exiled. This moving mountain, whose name is Nebuchadnezzar, is going to invade and destroy Egypt. Comments and questions? Interesting that verse 14 the three
4: cities that are old Memphis, Tophany. Those were the places that the Jews fled in chapter
0: 44. Good point. Yeah, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So, this is a prophecy long before they fled there. But yeah, I mean, the very places the Jews thought they could seek refuge in, they should have listened to Jeremiah earlier, shouldn't they? The prophets are always interesting, but you have to really read them and think about them. It's got creative analogies and things like that, but sometimes you've got to explain the analogy to get it. So, um, alright, 20 to 20, 20 to 2080.
3: Egypt is a pretty heifer, but a horsefly is coming from the north. It is coming. Also, her mercenaries and her mitts are like fattened calves. For they too have turned back and have fled away together. They did not stand on the ground, for the day of calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. Its sound its sound moves along like a serpent, for they move on like an army and come to her as woodcutters with axes. They have cut down her forest, says the Lord, surely it will be no more and it will no more be found, even though they are now more numerous than locusts, and are without number. The daughter of Egypt has been put to shame, given over to the power of the people of the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I am going to punish Ammon of Thebes, and Pharaoh and Egypt, along with her gods and her kings, even Pharaoh and those who trust in him. I shall give them over to the power of those who are seeking their lives, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his officers. Afterwards, however, it will be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. But as for you, O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For I see, for see I am going to save you from afar, and your descendants from the land of their captivity. When Jacob will return and be undisturbed, and secure with no one making him tremble. O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, declares the Lord, for I am with you. For I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you, yet I will not make a full end of you. But I will correct you
0: properly, and by no means leave you on time. Okay. Well, this is interesting, too. What does he describe Egypt as in verse 20? Pretty heifer. Well, what do you think? A pretty heifer. Now, a heifer is a what?
2: Cow. A cow.
0: Yeah. So, Egypt is a really nice-looking cow.
2: <laughs> Yay. <laughs> That's, I bet
0: that's, like, the best
2: compliment that they would ever feel. Yeah.
1: Does
0: so, I mean, that they want to eat it? Totally. No, I don't think it's <laughs> that they want to eat it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Like
1: when he, Like, when he talks about very pretty heifer, the thing that comes to mind is, uh, is like, uh, they slaughter the fatted calf, almost, and that's what, it comes to mind when they say that. Yeah, I don't,
0: uh, he does end up the mercenaries are like fattened calves in verse 21 that'll be eaten, but I don't think it's just the matter. Uh, you'd eat the calf or eat the cow. But we've been looking what kind of imagery have we been having here mostly? Yes. Yes,
2: okay.
0: Yeah, but, but what's what imagery about what? Up till here it's been mostly images related to what kinds of stuff? Landscape. Yeah that. You're not a runner, like farmer, you
2: know when they see their cows and they're fat and healthy and
0: they're beautiful to them they are beautiful but we've been using military images mm-hmm. battle images so um, how valuable is a nice pretty fat cow in a war well, food. but food yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Can i can food. see that but it'll get like if they were to use
0: it for food, then it would basically just get slaughtered. Right. If you're thinking about, I mean, what kind of animals do you want to use in battle?
2: Elephants.
0: Elephants. Boy, well, <laughs> those were big in certain periods of time. They were. But probably more in more broad periods of time, you Which use what? Horses. Steeds and stallions and things like that. I mean, I don't know. Are you Are going to be able to ride that heifer into battle? <laughs> <You know>. <laughs> <laughs> maybe she'd waddle in the cow could
2: bring
0: in the wooden horse yeah yeah a trojan horse yeah yeah maybe so i mean the thing of it is she's attractive she looks cool in a parade but she's not much in battle you know i think that's the idea egypt's got herself all dolled up. I maybe mean, she's stylish You know, she looks good. She's she's got all these really nice looking troops. They're all in really nicely pressed, colorful uniforms. And, you know, it's kind of a put down. I mean, do you want to say to a guy, you look like a really pretty
2: pal? Yeah, you you are,
0: you know, if you, if, if somebody actually, without teasing you, said to a guy, you look so cute. How many guys really want to look cute in that way? Now, sometimes we use cute a little differently. Right? But, you know, guys would a lot rather be kind of, uh, you know, manly, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe well, like they're, Maybe they're, yeah. Uh, maybe their clothes are not so stylish and they haven't got all the jewelry and all the lace and frills and all that. Guys don't usually matter about that. You know, you like to be tough. You know, so saying, you know, Egypt's this really cute cow is <laughs> <laughs> kind of a put down to the uh, imagery of the battle. And and look at what God sends against this heifer in verse 20. Horsefly. The horsefly from the north. What does a horsefly do to a heifer? Yeah, it yeah, annoys the living daylights out of it. Just, you know, really bugs it. You know, and of course, (laughs) from the north, you know, that's where Babylon comes from, from the north. So the horse fly from the north is going to annoy the time out of this pretty cow. And uh, you just imagine, kind of envision these pampered troops that are really unfit for any kind of fighting. So the mercenaries in her midst are like fattened calves, you know. You, you know, I'm almost imagining these uh, overly well-fed soldiers. <laughs> you know, I don't know. If, 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 if you knew we had an army, would you like to think the army is uh, averaging, you know, about uh, you know, 80 pounds overweight? How's that going to work for an army? Well, unless the, unless the enemy all lays down and let you sit on them, it's probably not a very good idea. Mobility is kind of key for our uh, military. So these fatten calves, you know, they can't stand their ground. They flee away as fast as they can waddle. And, uh, you know, verse 22, they move along like a serpent. Uh, and, and this is the enemy coming as woodcutters with their axes to chop down the forest we just switch metaphors like that but uh, the Egyptians are like snakes trying to slither away the invading army are like the woodsman that just swarm over the forest and cut it all down and so Egypt is a, is a cut down forest um, the daughter of Egypt is given to shame given over to the power of the people of the north so uh, the north Babylon is going to conquer Egypt uh, God says in 25, I'm going to conquer all these cities of Egypt and Pharaoh and Egypt along with her gods. Her gods aren't going to help her a bit, uh, nor are the rulers, nor are the people. All of them are given in to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon's hand. By the way, I looked it up where God says that um, he's going to give Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar as a consolation prize for not having done it, gotten any money out of beaten down uh, Tyre, that is Ezekiel 29, 17 to 21, uh, so that's, that's where he said that, uh, but so, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to conquer Egypt um, and then he has just this little section in 27 and 28 telling his people not to fear or be dismayed. He was going to save them, and they would one day get to return to their land uh, secure, and because uh, God was with them, uh, he, he was going to destroy Babylon ultimately, but he was not going to destroy Israel. So just a little note at the end of the prophecy against Egypt, there is a future for Israel, and God will bless them again. I love these prophecies, but they really tax you to think through them and understand them comments or questions on chapter 46 Yes, I
1: find it interesting 46 when it uh, tells Israel that I will not make an end of you And I will not I will not leave you wholly unpunished He's Saying that you will be punished, but I'm not gonna make an end of you and we can see that today like the nation of Israel is still around right
0: Yes uh, and the Jews, even before Israel became back a nation, uh, though I suspect he more means that in this historical context. But right, right. Other things, well, we can pick up one, pick off one more chapter here pretty easily. I think uh,